Hi folks, welcome to this week's edition of the Finance Hour. The topic of this week's show is Startup Nation. I interview Harry Kingsley, who's a partner at Holding Redlick. Harry is not your average lawyer. In addition to his usual practice, he works with Israeli companies looking to expand their business to Australia or raise money for growth. In this episode, we talk about why Australia is a popular destination for Israeli companies, which industries Australia and Israel have in common, and the complex legal issues that come up in Harry's work. And be sure to listen to Ruben's rant where I talk about AFL player trading. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, welcome to the Finance Hour. You might be listening live on Jair or on the podcast. My name's Ruben Zelwa. This show is all about giving you some insight into the world of business and finance, and it might in fact help you make some better decisions. Uh, I welcome you. You can find this podcast either on iTunes, on Stitcher, or on the website adaptwealth.com.au, and we've even just recently been on Spotify, put on Spotify as well. There's lots of places where you can find the show. There's lots of repeats. We've been doing about 50 shows so far, and it's uh, still a lot of fun, and we're still motivated to keep going. Well, the topic of this week's show today is Startup Nation. We're going to talk about doing business in Israel, and particularly Israeli companies doing business in Australia as well. We've got a guest today whose name is Harry Kingsley. He's a partner at Holding Redlick, uh, a law firm. And Harry's done a lot of work with Israeli companies, and we're going to learn a bit about why do Israeli companies actually want to come to Australia. Anyway, that's coming up very, very shortly. But before that, it is time for Ruben's Rant. Ruben's Rant. Now, my rant this week is about the AFL trade period. I listen to SEN a lot, probably too much, and they're always talking about uh, trades, you know, players moving from one club to another. And one thing that's become a little controversial is, you know, players get contracts, they sign up to contracts for one club for a long period of time, maybe three or four years, and then they decide partway through, even after a year or two, that they want to leave. And that's all good and well, uh, but, you know, they've signed a contract with a club, so the club's got to agree to trade them. But what irks me a bit is that it seems to be really, really common that the players say, oh, they're feeling a bit homesick, they want to go home, right? So that means, I don't know, you were a Victorian boy, you went to play in Brisbane, but you want to come home to mum and dad. Now, look, I understand that there might be certain situations where it's really important to go home, but the way I see it, if you've signed a contract and you're a professional footballer, you know, suck it up, right? Everyone misses home a little bit. So go home during the breaks. You've got a few months at the end of the year. Or maybe when your contract's up, go home. But I find it a bit disingenuous. I think everyone says this excuse of, you know, we want to be traded so we can go home. If you want to be traded, say you want to be traded. Just don't use that as an excuse because I reckon it's a bit soft. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break and then we will get Harry Kingsley on the phone. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. The topic of this week's show is Startup Nation, but I'm not sure if I have Harry on the phone. Harry, are you there? Hi, Ruben. How are you? Excellent. We've got you. Sorry about the technical issue. So, Harry, the topic of this week's show is Startup Nation. Uh, we're going to talk about, I think largely about Israeli companies doing business in Australia, although I'm not sure if you've got experience the other way around. Um, but can you just give us, to start with for the listeners, a little bit of background as to 
you know, what your role is now, how you got to where you got to, uh, but, you know, make it pretty brief. No worries. You obviously <laughs> know me well, Ruben. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm a partner in a, um, a full-service law firm called Holding Redlick. We've got offices in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and now, interestingly enough, Cairns, but that's probably a, t- a story for another time. Um, we pretty much do everything except tax. I've been here for three years. Prior to that, I was the general counsel for a large transport company, which doesn't exist anymore as a result of a takeover. Yeah. Before, before that, for six years, I worked for a boutique um, investment bank, and before that, I worked for one of the big law firms um, here in Melbourne. So a bit of a, a varied sort of background over sort of 15 to 20 years. And now I find myself a partner in a law firm um, in the mid-tier, doing a lot of work in the equity capital markets and M&A space. And in the last sort of three years, focusing a lot on Israel. So yeah, terrific. So, so look, speaking about Israel, is he, are you do you do a lot of work for Australian companies trying to set up shop in Israel, or or the other way around, or is it both? Um, there aren't that many Australian companies that are trying to do work in Israel. Mm. Australia is probably a net importer of services and products from Israel as opposed to the other way around. Right, okay. Um, yeah, I'm not seeing much go the other way. Okay, and what sort of industry, I mean, you'd think typically it would be largely uh, technology sort of businesses trying to trying to come from Israel to Australia. Is that is that the majority? Yeah, so in the commercial space as opposed to the capital space, um, Israeli companies have been coming to Australia predominantly because um, Australia is a Western democracy, English-speaking, mm. and they use it as a hub for Asia and use it as a bit of a, a jumping-off point, although Hong Kong is also probably relevant as well. So just uh, let me just pause for one second. So just explain to our listeners the difference between commercial and capital. Um, in terms of commercial, what we're talking about is companies that are coming here to sell their products and services right. either to Australia yep. or to to Australia as a base as well for Asia. Okay. In, in terms of capital, um, it, it's more taking advantage of Australia's um, pension scheme or superannuation structure where we have a lot of cash washing around because of the 9.5%, that's being garnished from everyone's salaries. Mm. So we have a lot of funds out there looking to park um, those, those monies in interesting propositions. And Israeli companies, like many others, have come here to see if they can buy for a piece of that uh, capital buy. Okay, that's interesting. All right, well, let's. I, I want to cover both of those issues, but let's, as you say, go back to the commercial uh, for now. So, what kind of what kind of businesses generally do you do you see that are coming here from Israel? Well, um, unsurprisingly, um, Israel has got a very active military and technology um, for military space, and mm-hmm. there are companies out there that not so much in the, in the weapons themselves, but things like um, heads-up displays for helmets, um, you know, body armour, mm. um, communication, cyber, cyber systems, um, electronic warfare, um, communications and technology. What in the military space they call C4I, which stands for, and I can't remember what all the Cs are, but it's uh, communicate... Um, and so forth. So it's in the in the electronic uh, space. So so they're they're leveraging off Israel's expertise in the military, well, in the yeah. military technology. And but 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 when they come here, they're not necessarily selling it to the Australian Defence Force. They're selling it for other uses. Is that right? 
No, they are selling it to the Australian Department. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah, they're tendering into um, a lot of the open Commonwealth uh, material procurement tenders. Ah, I see. So that's an open space, and the Israeli companies are coming here as are others, although most companies that tend to win those are what we call the prime contractors in the Mm. military space, so the the Raytheons, the Northrop Grumman's, the Boeing's, and so forth. So they're not Uh, selling any of this to, like, you know, any of the paintball places? I don't know. Like, uh, uh, not that I'm aware. Of. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's yeah. uh, okay. So that's in the military, and then and then what other sort of industries as well? Uh, well, uh, agritech. There's a lot yep. of agritech. Mm. Um, we know that the t- two of the biggest irrigation companies in the world are operating here in in Australia um, from Israel. Most notably, there's Netafim, which has a big presence. Um, and also um, Yellow Pages is owned by an Israeli company and um, they operate out of Australia as well. Mm. So, so that's sort of the, the three main buckets um, that Israeli companies come to participate in the yeah. selling of goods and services in Australia. Yeah, so that's, I guess that's interesting, the irrigation one, because that's something that yeah, Israel and Australia have in common, that a massive part of the countries are desert. So maybe we, we sort of relate to them on that, on that aspect. And I'm interested to hear you say that they then use Australia as a jumping off point to Asia because uh, in some ways you would have thought, well, it's coming to Australia or to Melbourne, you know, you're coming all the way to the bottom of the world only to um, only to shoot back half the way back up to Asia. Why, why is it attractive for companies to come here and then launch to Asia? I think it's very hard for a lot of companies to um, go to Asia, which is quite... Um, sort of network focus and find find out how to become part of the business network there. It's quite mm. hard to break in, whereas in Australia, if you partner up with Australian companies or people who are already selling into Asia right. and have networks there, um, it's probably slightly easier. And mm. over time, you know, I'm sure those companies will embed themselves more into China than they are. Mm. But as a, a starting off point, it's often easier to come to Australia. Oh, it's interesting because I would have thought Israel directly would have had a lot of uh, strong export relations to Asia. But are you saying it's much more that the Australian kind of connection is actually stronger? Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying um, that there are some companies that mm. feel that they, they can sort of come here the landscape is known, the the, um, the legal system is, is better understood and, and more trusted. It's more of a stable right. political climate. And, um, you know, it, it's easier to know where you stand in Australia than in some countries where you're trying to do business where, um, you know, understanding how to become part of both the political, legal, you know, and, and risk standpoint. So, for example... Um, a lot of business in China is done off the back of um, goodwill and relationships. Mm. So when I was working in, you know, the transport company and we would um, contract to buy wagons from China for rail and there were defects, um, often the contract wasn't looked at. Um, later on, the, um, the Chinese company would say, we'll just make you whole on the next order. Mm. Um, you, you fix this and, and we'll work it out in the next round. Whereas when you deal with an Australian company, you look at the contract, someone's got an obligation to, um, you know, the warranties that they provide in mm. terms of fitness for purpose, and they honour those warranties, whereas um, some companies in China prefer to say, you know, it's a relationship model and we'll make you whole on the next order. Yeah. Rather and, w- than, and they yeah. may or may not. Now, Harry, I know you've uh, spent a bit of time over in Israel. Uh, you spent a couple of years there after you finished school, I think, and, uh, and you've been there quite a bit. So you probably know 
uh, you would understand the cultures of both uh, countries. How, how different are they and how does that sort of play out, um, you know, in a commercial or business sense? Yeah. It's an interesting question and it's the subject of the book Startup Nation, if anyone yeah. has read it. Um, there's many, many, many different theories. Uh, it also depends who you're dealing with in Israel, what exposure they've had to overseas companies. Mm. Um, you know, one of some of the key differences that are highlighted in that book are the fact that people go to the army, they spend three years in the army, um, they only start university when they're in, once they're in their 20s, mm. and therefore, you know, people tend to have a little bit more of a mature outlook in terms of what they choose to do, not just jumping into the traditional professions. Yeah. Um, and not just that, but because cost of living is pretty high, wages are fairly low compared to other Western countries, the opportunity cost of leaving a stable job and going to work for a startup where there may be some big upside mm. is probably less than, you know, if you're, let's say, an accountant at, you know, PwC in Melbourne and yeah. talking about doing your own startup. Like so up a I big salary. Things, you know, f- factor in. Yeah, yeah. And what about actually just from a practical sense, right? I, you're saying that's from a, I don't know how the people grow up, but a practical sense, I mean, you're dealing with Israeli businessmen you know, in a, dealing with Australia, what sort of particular challenges, you know, do they face? What do they have to adjust to to be successful here? Um, I think more and more the differences are becoming blurred. Mm. In the very beginning, I'd say that, uh, and it also depends what tier of company you're working with. Um, you know, if you're working with some of the biggest Israeli companies, then, you know, what you're going to find is that they've got a lot of international experience. Yeah, they okay. might have studied and or worked internationally. Yeah. It, it, it really depends who you're dealing with. But typically, um, they have a bit more of a laid-back attitude, less professional. Mm. Um, and, you know, in terms of dress, don't necessarily wear suits and ties. Language mm. is more casual. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but I, I imagine... I all, yeah, sorry, finish. I was just going to say, unlike China, where it takes a very, very, very long time to build a relationship, yeah. um, you know, and, and you, it takes you a long time to break in. In Israel, people are very familiar very quickly, but, you know, you can also have the tap turned off as well pretty quickly. And, and, and what role, I mean, we've got a very strong Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce, which I understand promotes business between the, between the countries. What, 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 how effective is that and what, you know, what's your, been, what's your dealings been with them and how's it, how's it helped? The Chamber is very, very powerful. It's one of the most powerful um, Chambers of Commerce we have in Australia. Um, mm. you know, by contrast, you go to a sort of uh, once every two months uh, Chamber lunch and you've got 1,500 people in a room at Crown. Mm. Um, I, I recently went to a, a, a British uh, French Chamber of Commerce lunch with Australia and there were maybe 70 people in the mm. room. So that, the Australia Chamber of Commerce and the Israel-Australia Chamber of Commerce from the other side are very active They've got some very significant people. Obviously, Leon Kempler um, is sort of the, the head of the chamber here. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what his title is, but he's very well connected. He's um, very well respected, and um, he's involved in bringing a lot of missions uh, to Israel. And when I say missions, I mean people who go for a week um, with specific purpose in mind. It might be from a specific company seeing their counterparts in Israel, mm. or it might be from the Victorian government. It might be investors looking to invest in a particular style of company. They lead over 50 missions a year, and they've got a pretty active group of Australians who live in Israel and who um, are responsible for those missions as they happen. 
and, yeah. and understand. They're there for a number of reasons. Firstly, a lot of people get a view of Israel on the news, which um, really surprises them when they hit the ground and they mm. see Tel Aviv and Jerusalem as very cosmopolitan, very active, um, you know, cities with a social life and a night life that you know they couldn't dream of. Um, looking at the news in Australia, um, secondly, there's an infrastructure here um, that is starting to warm to the the Israeli startup and, and mature company scene where people see Israel as a go-to destination, kind of like the Singapore of the Middle East. Mm. And, you know, I know that you don't see every company as a, an amazingly high-quality company, but every now and again you see a company and you think, wow, like I've never seen anything like this before. Mm. So th- that's very interesting. And the other aspect, I guess, you know, which we, we touched on at the beginning was, was capital. So Israeli companies coming here to raise capital. Um, I'm interested in, in, in how and why that's occurring. I mean, traditionally, as I understood it, uh, you know, Israeli companies raise, would raise a lot of money on NASDAQ, and I think there was some disproportionate number of Israeli companies that are listed on the NASDAQ. What's attractive about... Oh, sorry. You did already say that it's attractive for them to come here to raise money from Australian superannuation funds, but what else is, is the attraction for them to come in here rather than, you know, America, which was the traditional base? Yeah, um, that's a good question, and a question that's asked often. Um, when mm. you go to investors and introduce them to an Israeli company uh, that's listing in Australia or raising capital in Australia. So it's probably worth going back a couple of years to three years ago or so, when what we had was the tail end of a resources boom. Mm. And if you look at the ASX structure, maybe half of the companies on the ASX are mining oil and gas. And yeah. When, when things are booming in Perth and Brisbane and in the coal and iron ore and oil and gas space, there's obviously a lot of people trying to list new companies and um, raise capital for, you know, uh, what they call uh, wildcat drilling onshore, offshore, mm-hmm. looking for new prospects in whatever resource is hot at the time. But when that comes off and the commodity cycle changes to a, a lower priced commodity cycle where people aren't buying as much iron ore and coal, etc., then those funds dry up for resources companies. And mm. you have a whole bunch of moribund um, resources companies, usually over in Perth, um, who are looking for a new way to regenerate. You've got shareholders, you've got promoters, people with mining shells that they don't quite know mm. what to do with. And, and one of the things that happens as the cycle turns is they look for companies in a different sector that they think are, you know, quite unquote hot. Mm. And Australia's got a dearth of tech companies. We don't do, you know, with the exception of Atlassian and Wise Tech and a, and a bunch of others, there's probably 20 companies that you could point to that have been successful. Mm. Um, we don't have a, a massive kind of undercrop of those up-and-coming, you know, startup companies that they can take advantage of. So people with connections to the Jewish community in Israel started to go to Israel and started to put term sheets in front of startups who were probably at the end of exhausting their, you know, cash ability. Mm. So, so are you saying that they're, they're shells, so these shells of uh, companies, basically the carcass of, uh, of these resource, you know, small resource companies that are now, you know, empty, you're saying that Israeli companies then come and, you know, re-revive that thing, um, you know, by putting yeah. their company in. Is that, is that how it works? Well, you know, you, you have a broker um, and, and a management team who, let's say, previously had a, 
you know, uranium company that post Fukushima, you know, was pretty dead. Nobody mm. was interested in uranium. They couldn't raise any more capital. So they're sort of on subsistence care and maintenance. Mm. And they can't raise any more capital for their current business plan. But what if they had a new business plan and could find an exciting company to reinvigorate their investor base mm. and capture some residual benefit for their existing shareholders who are now all but, you know, scotched their money. Yeah. So they, go to, they, yeah. they go to Israel and they say to a tech company, you know, you've done your various venture capital rounds, your A rounds, your B rounds, your C rounds. At this point in time, your investors are expecting an exit and mm. you don't have one for them. You haven't maybe um, commercialized your technology as quickly as you'd like mm. and people have maybe dried up in terms of um, investment for you. So how about you come to Australia, we've got people there with capital who would be really interested in your story and we'll list you by what's called a backdoor listing or mm. a reverse takeover. Mm. Um, backdoor listing sounds a bit more sinister. Well, a, back, <laughs> a, back, <laughs> a backdoor listing as opposed to a, a proper initial public offering or IMO yeah. is where an existing company that's listed on the exchange but doesn't really have a business to speak yeah. of anymore acquires all of the shares in an unlisted business and instead of giving it cash, it gives it shares in itself. Mm, so in yeah. effect, that new incoming business becomes an operating subsidiary. Mm. And then all of the Israeli company shareholders are issued shares at an agreed percentage. Right. So, for example, previously where the Shell might have had 400 Aussie shareholders holding 100% of the capital, it then issues shares equal to, let's say, a further 80%, mm. and the remaining shareholders are left with 20%, which is yeah. better to have 20% of something than 100% of nothing. Right, and then in, in theory, those Israeli investors, they've now got an investment that's listed on the Australian share market, so in theory, they, they can sell it. Although I imagine for some of these small companies, there's not a huge amount of liquidity, a huge amount of buyers and sellers. Would that be right? That would be right. So mm. with few exceptions, a lot of these backdoor listings have failed. So mm. um, they trade by appointment. There's not much volume. And some of these companies have not fulfilled the promises that they've made in their, in their backdoor listing prospectus. Yeah. Um, so they've, they've failed. Um, there are a few exceptions. Um, one very, very good exception is a company called Fluence that, that listed as a company called um, MFC and it merged with Fluence and it's a water treatment technology and that's done really well. For, um, mm. for its shareholders and, and a few others, um, but as notable exceptions rather than the rule. Um, yeah. Why come to the ASX? The short answer is that um, the Israeli companies' preferred exit or preferred transactional liquidity events would be uh, a listing on the NASDAQ, as you said, mm -hmm. or to be taken out like Waze did, uh, where Google took them out for a hundred million uh, for a billion dollars. Mm. Um, yeah, that's the dream. And, and a lot of companies look at that as, you know, that's the, the ultimate. Um, although I, I should say that there was a company that we saw where the founder was taken out for circa a billion US. And um, once we did the sums, we realized the founder probably had taken 20 million out of the billion dollar sale personally. Mm. Um, tax took 10 out of the 20 and then he got divorced. So he was probably left with five. <laughs> so, yeah, well, so, it's a good way so, to halve your assets or even more than halve them. Yeah. So, so whilst you hear about these massive exits, 
and mm. uh, huge numbers, it's often not the founders and the people who make the company what it is who, who earn the big bucks, but the venture capitalists mm. who come along the way right. and, and take big percentages of the company. So that's, that's interesting. So you say one, one, one way of them is they come in and they uh, revive these sort of you know, redundant public companies. But you talked more about, uh, you talk about superannuation funds as well. I imagine big super funds aren't investing like that. Are they are they coming direct to the super funds for other, you know, for other capital? Yeah, so, so the, the super funds are not investing in this, but the super funds are the top of the wholesale chain of money. Mm. So the super funds might go to a asset manager and say, we've got all this money, who, who's worth putting some money behind? And they might say, well, you know, let's put some money behind this company that's lending money to infrastructure plays that the government's doing, so motorways and bridges, and that's sort of at the sub-wholesale level. And then the money trickles all the way down to what we call the sort of the small-cap fund managers, of which there mm. are maybe 20 or 30, and, and they get some of their cash as a trickle-down effect from the large pools that superannuation funds collect. And oh, they I might see. be able to, you know, they might be able to allocate some of their funds into these kind of um, oh, ventures. It, and it, oh, yeah. So they'll in turn allocate some of the money into those listed entities. Correct, and you know there yeah. there are some not- there are some notable companies that do that. You know, you've got companies, you know, like Regal and Allium and, and others who yeah. have got pre-IPO funds that I are see. looking for you know, the IPO upside. I see. So it's not like it's not like you know a big super fund like Australian Super is you know buying you know twenty percent of Bezek or something. No, <laughs> we're, we're talking about much smaller companies. Yeah. Um, and and the ASX has actually looked at a lot of these backdoor listings and has actively tried to discourage them. Mm. And I won't go into the regulation they've put in place, but they've made it a lot more unattractive to do a backdoor listing. Yeah. Than than, than what we'd call a front door listing or an IPO, which is just a a direct float on the market. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I also would have thought, I mean, obviously, I don't know that much about the rules in international markets, but I know, you know, Australia is a very, very heavy, heavily regulated from a financial services perspective. I mean, people will say that, well, based on what happened to the Royal Commission, it's poorly enforced, but the regulations are pretty, pretty strict here. So I would have thought that that might be a bit of a deterrent. Yeah, I think you're saying that it is. Yeah, and, and that's another interesting thing because um, the ASX is a place that Israeli companies come to list on because they don't have enough critical mass for the NASDAQ. So the NASDAQ really has a fee structure that makes it prohibitive unless you're, mm. call it, you know, a hundred million market cap plus. So unless your company's valuation is more than a hundred mil, the fees that NASDAQ charge means that um, it's really not that worth it. Yeah. So, you know, Israeli companies have got probably two other key markets in English-speaking countries that they go for. One's the ASX and the other one's the Toronto Stock Exchange. I see. Um, which has a similar profile to ASX in terms of um, how Israeli companies look at them. Yeah. The, the only thing about the TSX is that because Canada has now legalised cannabis for all adults, <laughs> um, not just medicinal cannabis, yeah. um, unless, unless you're in the cannabis space at the moment, the TSX probably not going to give you a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, whereas the ASX have been sending out um, business development people to Israel now for at least two years, four to five times a year. Is that right? So, so some of these BD people 
have become intimately acquainted with the Israeli space mm. and they're visiting investment banks, incubators, venture capitalists, Israeli companies at cocktail functions, at law firms, and they're pushing the ASX very, very hard. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. The so, problem, though, yeah. the problem, though, is as, as business development people, they're not really selling the heavy compliance burden. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're going to say, oh, you got to come here and guess what? You need to, like, you know, report to us every single week all your financials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're business development people. They're not compliance. Yeah. I mean, one, inter- one really interesting thing about Israeli companies is that um, we used to have resources companies a couple of years ago um, who were struggling to get their projects away and had, let's say, a billion-dollar build mm. um, in order to get their iron ore project or what have you away. And they'd make an announcement that somebody from China, you know, a, a company that nobody had heard of, was going to fund them. The share price would go up 50%, and then six months later they'd announce that the, the deal had fallen through and, in fact, the company was a $2 company. Mm. So, so the ASX have now um, made it very, very... Um, clear that you cannot make an announcement about a contract or a business relationship unless you clearly outline who the counterparty is. Mm, mm. Now, one of the biggest problems with tech companies is that they are usually a solution that feeds into a bigger solution. So, for example, one of my clients um, builds sensors for aircraft and those sensors determine whether there are stress fractures in the body of the aircraft. Who are they doing business with? the big aircraft manufacturers. Mm. Now, the big aircraft manufacturers have got huge bureaucracies and know that their name is valuable, so they don't lend their name out to be used in announcements mm. and publications. Yeah. There are very, very onerous um, requirements around confidentiality mm. using you know, big companies' names. And a lot of these Israeli tech companies have you know, had MOUs or memoranda of understanding or letters of intent or pilot programs with you know the Microsofts and the Googles of this world, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but they're banned from using the name. So mm. when it comes time to raise public money, the ASX say um, you can't be silent on who your relationships right. are with because retail investors must know the quality of these relationships, right. what they mean, yep. and how much money they're worth. Mm. The Israeli companies, um, and not just Israeli companies, but a lot of small tech companies who fit into a larger landscape, say. That's not fair. We've signed an, a non-disclosure agreement. Mm. If we do that, they'll cancel the contract and terminate us and potentially sue us for damages for breach <laughs> of confidentiality. Right, right. Jeez, that's interesting. That's, so that, that, yeah, yeah, that's that really uh, yeah. So that's really uh, two uh, yeah, two two worlds collide, really, isn't there? How, how do you how do you resolve things like that? Um. Well, usually they manifest themselves towards the end of a prospectus drafting period where mm. you've got a bunch of blanks because, you know, Microsoft or Intel or whoever it is won't allow you to use their name. And then you sort of um, go into a campaign for two or three weeks where you, you've just got a bunch of people spending time trying to come up with some wording that the other side will live with. Right, right. Sometimes, sometimes they won't. Mm. Um and in, in that case, you have to completely omit that from the prospectus mm. because you can't really talk about it. Um, and usually it's at pilot stage, so you can make an argument that it's not material. But the mere fact that the company has a pilot with a company of that quality, I would say is material. But at this point in time, 
um, the ASX does not accept anonymity uh, as an excuse. Oh, well, it sounds like there's uh, a lot of complexities, uh, you know, to, to doing to, to the relationships. As you say, in, es- in essence, it's kind of simple. You want to come out here and, you know, you've got a great business in Israel and you want to expand your market. But, uh, yeah, there's uh, there's complexities that come up and certainly a lot of legal complexities. And I guess that's uh, that's how you make a living. Yeah, I mean, some of the biggest complexities are around value. Mm. Israeli companies come here. You know, everybody's got one data point where they see themselves as being the competitor of another company that got taken out for umpteen hundreds of millions of US dollars, and they use that as a comparator. Mm. When, when they come to, to Australia, they've often done a bunch of um, capital raisings in the private space, never dipping below the previous capital raising round. Mm. meaning that, you know, they've done one round at five, another round at 10, another round at 20, another round at 30. And when you ask what the value is based on, it's really a, a back solve for how much equity the founder doesn't want to give away and how much capital they need to raise. Yeah, yeah. So that they kind of back solve how big the company needs to be. Yeah, without, um, without having a really value. robust valuation. So, you know, yeah, it might make sense for the seller, but it doesn't necessarily make sense for the purchaser. Yeah, so, so they come here and they speak to brokers and try to get a broker and they say, we've got a couple of commercial pilots, we've got a million dollars in revenue from the pilots, we've got a fantastic um, you know, set of technologies in the, you know, you name it, space backed up by patents that were generated from world-leading universities. But we don't yet have any companies that have taken us on as their solution for mm. whatever it is that they do. And we value ourselves at 50 million US dollars. <laughs> nice. Um, the the brokers here, you know, the brokers here quote the castle and they say, get your hand off it, Daryl. And, um, the, the end result is that those companies who deal with the brokers where the brokers are sort of quite, um, harsh and upfront about that usually don't end up doing business. It's the brokers who understand the Israeli mentality that they have to let the market dictate to these people what the company's worth over time. Mm. Those are the ones that usually succeed. Yeah, yeah. It's so, all about having reasonable expectations. Yeah, and, oh. and there are ways to bridge the valuation gap. Mm. All right, Harry. Well, look, thanks very much for the chat today. It's been very useful. Hopefully, uh, you know, you've got some listeners. We've got some Israeli listeners to this uh, to this podcast as well. So it will have been uh, useful for them and for our general listeners as well. I think it's given some great insight into, uh, you know, what makes Israeli businesses tick and, and how the, uh, you know, the, the uh, business relationships between our countries are thriving, no doubt facilitated by good people such as yourself. Thanks, Ruben. Thanks for having me. Okay. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, folks. Well, that's it for the show for today. Thanks for listening in. Uh, if you want to uh, leave us a rate and review, head over to our iTunes account. You can find us on Spotify now as well as Stitcher. Uh, otherwise, have a great week and we will see you again next week.